This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. I'm Paul McDermott and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Toasted Heretic, The Shanks, Nina Hines, Therapy, That Petrol Emotion, Into Paradise, The Stars of Heaven and loads more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking and sharing. Now, so far we've produced 30 episodes of the podcast and those 30 episodes have focused on 36 different albums. The aim of the podcast has always been to shine a light on some lesser known artists and albums. And if it's heartworm, Viva Dead Ponies or Kemi Crazy that brought you to this podcast, I hope you'll stay the distance there are many, many more great albums worth discovering. So I'm going to insert a few promos here for a couple of the recent episodes, some of the lesser known albums we've covered over the course of the last 12 months. In my head, Jet Plane Landing, I always called a Derry band. That's not technically true at all, though, sure it's not, Andrew? No, we're the we're the Anglo-Irish agreement of bands, you know. Yeah. I'm from Derry, obviously. Derry's really important, I think, for our story as a band. I mean, Jamie's obviously English. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and Jet Plane is as much about British rock music as it is Irish rock music. I learned how to play guitar in Derry at the feet of John O'Neill in a guitar club in the Northwest Musicians Collective in 1990. That's what became the Nerve Centre, isn't it? Yeah, being 13 and going into a guitar class that was taught by fucking John O'Neill, Sean O'Neill. I hadn't a clue, and truthfully I'd gone to the guitar class because I fancied one of the girls who was in the guitar class, but she wasn't there, it was just me and him in the room. And he says, so what do you want to learn? I said, I really, I don't know. I didn't really know who he was. Jamie and I talk about catching a fire, but he really lit a fire in me. This is not revolution rock, you hear. Revolution rock, this is not revolution rock, you hear. It's something much less complex. To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 26, Zero for Conduct by Jet Plane Landing. Silence the critics, I may have found the answer. I put it to you, how much longer can we continue? I put it to you, how much does it hurt to ask this question? I put it to you, we must not go quietly. We must not go quietly. We must not go quietly. This is not revolution rock in here. This podcast is about albums and stuff, but they never really catch the music at its maddest, at its wildest. 
there was just different nights where whatever was happening on stage it was just so kind of special that you were going oh my god I'm just so happy to be here there's one night laying down in Watford there's one of the songs called Two Dogs it's an obscured story of the band and bands that we knew around Cork just the way it was happening that night I actually can remember crying on stage there was a friend of ours Aidan O'Connell you know yeah. and I always say AOC RIP the lyrics of the song are just about all the med bands and stuff that had played around Cork when that tune hit I was going oh my god I'm just so lucky to be here or whatever you know To Hear Knows When great Irish albums revisited episode 27 The Prawn Lawn and Brang by The Shanks It's our version of our romanticised Dublin. Of course, this is the Dublin that was disappearing at this point. We were obsessed with the 50s, 40s, Bagatonia, being, you know, even further back to Joyce and all of that stuff, all the stuff that the Fontaines have taken over the world with. We were doing that donkeys years ago and we were actually dubs. Oh, no. Stop. (laughs) No, but you know, but but my point is, it's... um, I know the, what the you point mean. was, like Fergus was saying earlier, is Dublin being our sort of, like a, a kind of our muse. There's a real coherency to it from the sleeves to the playing and the kind of lyrics and the presentation. I think we managed to capture something about our spirit and maybe unconsciously capture something about what was going on in the city. So maybe that's what people respond to. And we were also proud of the Stars of Heaven and the Blades and... Songs from Dublin, about Dublin and, and steeped in Dublin. The Guardian Review said it was like the first song about the bittersweet effects of urban gentrification. And my joke is like, uh, someone said to me, it's the only song about the bittersweet effects of urban gentrification. To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 28, Lights of the City. By Jubilee All Stars. And outside these noble Georgian buildings sit the scum and the immigrants and the dregs Buildings They hold courts And for In terms of just the, the sonic qualities of it It really stands up and it, it, it sounds great Let's say technically after all these years The concept of lo-fi was a bit of a myth in some ways that, you know, suddenly everything's very exposed. It's actually a very difficult thing to do because for a start, everything has to be completely in tune. The little harmonic differences in tuning can mean a lot, you know, when everything's exposed like that, you've got no distortion on the guitars. You've got nothing to hide that. And then, of course, the lyrics are very exposed. You stood alone on the stage Distinct summer lights 
because you're playing quiet music with a lot of breaks, a lot of gaps, and there's much more focus on the singer. And if you're not particularly comfortable <laughs> as being the center point, I suppose, you know, it's not a, an easy place to be, I suppose. But it's something you get used to over time. There's kind of a core friendship there amongst the four of us that sustains the whole thing. It's no effort to meet up and just churn through stuff. You mentioned it earlier, Paul, we're part-timers. It's a labour of love rather than, a, you know, a labour. Look, we've never made any money from it. But some people play golf in their spare time. Some people do all kinds of different things. Making slow music slowly, I think somebody said. And that's, that's kind of what we do. That's nice, actually, isn't it? That's nice. Who said that, the bastard? I don't remember who said that. <laughs> <laughs> Here knows when. Great Irish albums revisited. Episode 29. Soon it will come time to face the world outside by Boa Morte. Oh, I will swim through the oceans of your eyes or stay the praxis from the guys that spin. There you go, a few promos to some recent episodes in case you've missed them. Great conversations and indeed the albums they focus on are great too. Now this is a bonus episode and for it I'm returning to an old interview I did with Niall McCormack and Dr Kieran Swan. Niall has previously featured on the podcast in episode 28 when we focused on his band The Jubilee All-Stars and their great album Lights of the City. You've just heard a promo for it there a minute ago. Niall is a graphic designer and Dr. Kieran Swan has lectured in NCAD, the National College of Art and Design, since 2003 in visual culture. Back in 2017, Niall and Kieran curated an exhibition in the National Print Museum titled Green Sleeves, the Irish printed record cover 1955 to 2017. The blurb at the time read, This exhibition examines the Irish printed album cover. The album covers it included were all designed or printed in Ireland. The work was completed for Irish groups who worked at home or abroad, as well as albums from abroad referencing Ireland or Irishness. The collection dates from the late 1950s to the present day and covers a wide range of musical and non-musical genres. Niall and Kieran joined me for episode 675 of my radio show Songs to Learn and Sing for a wide-ranging chat about printing in Dublin, the evolution of design, the show bands, country in Irish, the Dutch designers that came to Ireland in the post-war era, Irish punk, indie releases in the 1980s, contemporary design and much, much more. We discussed the design of loads of albums that were featured in the exhibition, including albums by Clonid, Horselips, The Stars of Heaven, Gavin Friday, Donica Costello and loads of others. And our conversation was interspersed by music from the aforementioned artists. For the purposes of this podcast, I've removed the full songs that we played on the original radio programme. 
This interview was originally broadcast on Dublin City FM on the 23rd of August 2017 and I'm sharing it here as a bonus episode because I think anyone that has listened to an episode of the podcast will enjoy this conversation. So here we go to Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, bonus episode number three. It's my great pleasure to welcome Niall McCormack and Dr. Kieran Swan. If I'm right, Niall, you had kind of three or four parameters that it had to be an Irish artist. It had to be either designed in Ireland or yeah, designed or printed in Ireland or, you know, on a on an Irish record label. So indigenous sort of releases, really. There are bigger acts who are obviously Irish, but they would have been on UK labels or American labels and designed or printed in the UK or so that it was more the smaller kind of things that were happening and produced in the country that was, that's what interested us in a way but Kieran actually started this whole uh, project and originally printing in Ireland was to be the kind of focus of it wasn't it up to 1990 yeah I'd say yeah 1955 to 1990 but then Nog came in on board and it became rapidly apparent once we got talking to each other there was no way we could stop the story in 1990 it had to go on to the very present day and I mean Nog was hugely convincing and he made a fantastic case for the fact that even if records weren't printed in Ireland, it was necessary to keep the story going because, of course, it's the story of the uh, the decline of the print industry. It's also the story about the rise and the fall and maybe the very small reprise in the vinyl industry and printing record sleeves in Ireland. And we were amazed actually to find recently, and I think you you have the detail on this now, about some new vinyl printing presses being established in Dublin and I think there's a knock-on on the print side as well. Yeah, in the week we hung the exhibition <laughs> just as we'd finished all the text and everything we, there was an article in the Sunday Business Post saying there's a new pressing plant opening in Glasnevin. Of course that yeah. kind of put the cat amongst the pigeons because up to that our narrative was that vinyl production in Ireland had ended really in the late 80s, early 90s. The two big factories had cl- both closed around that time and the printing had stopped as well. A company in Drogheda is supposedly going to be manufacturing the sleeves to go with this new pressing plant in Glasnevin. So we'll wait and see if that happens. Yeah. But it's very interesting in that it fits in perfectly with kind of, you know, our thing putting the exhibition on was that there's this rise in interest. It took us by surprise that there was enough interest to kind of justify a, a revival in the actual manufacture here, yeah. you know. If I can take you back, guys, personally first to, I suppose, explain the whole like, genesis of the whole exhibition. Niall, I know that you were in a band years ago in Dublin. Um, yeah. To Jubilee All-Stars. Yeah, many years ago. You're a designer by yeah. profession now because yeah. I see your name on reissue sleeves and stuff. That's a lot of what I do, yeah. So, you know, I was I was always into the design element of it, but for a while I thought I was a musician. Uh, but the two things were happening in parallel. Yeah. So in a way, the, the band was a chance for me. Like, it, it just dawned on me that there's only one of my sleeves in the exhibition in the end, which is of a Jubilee album. That's actually the first LP sleeve I designed, bizarrely yeah. enough, and it's actually not too bad because I've done a lot of not so good ones since then <laughs> so it's weird you know maybe it's beginner's luck or fluke yeah. or something but um, so that was my interest in record covers is partly as from the musical end yeah. of it but really as a designer and a, I love kind of old kind of design I'm an interest in design history but I feel I'm a more of an enthusiast whereas I think Kieran has kind of credentials there yeah. and can fairly 
call himself a, a historian. You're, you're very kind. You're a lecturer, Kieran, aren't you? Uh, well, I have lectured in NCD uh, over the last decade Sorry. and a half, yeah. But I work in political design. That's okay. my day job. Okay. Uh, so everything else kind of, it's its a side interest. But I mean, I'm a, I'm a music fan, first yeah. and foremost. I remember what across fields in Kilbarrack where I grew up, uh, probably around 1980, and a, a voice rings out, hey, Swanee, is that the record collection? Because I was holding a Golden Discs bag with literally four <laughs> records in it. That was the record collection. <laughs> and, and I haste to say, I can even remember three of the records of in the it. Four. And I will not say what well, the fourth was. It. I actually know it. But I'm, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, I mean, from there, it's, it's gone on. And it's been, uh, and I've had this, I, I, I've been involved, obviously, in lecturing. And I, I, uh, visual representation is part and parcel of that. But I've also been involved in the curatorial committee of the National Print Museum where the exhibition is and my father-in-law uh, is a printer himself or was a printer he served his time in an outfit called uh, Earlsford Press in Dublin and uh, in the mid-60s he was telling me one day about three years ago in the mid-60s Earlsford Press was purchased or bought out by an outfit called Dakota which was the biggest packaging company in Ireland and it was repurposed almost entirely to print record sleeves and uh, I thought to myself that's a fantastic hook to hang an exhibition yeah. on in the print museum and then I thought, and you know, it's not just a print story. It's this story of the rise and fall of vinyl itself. And as we've been saying, the reappearance of vinyl. I went just expecting to see lots of records and kind of a history of music, really, mm. in Ireland. And what really hooked me straight away was the history of the various printers in Dublin and what was going on in Dublin and like the numbers involved were extraordinary in terms of how many printers and how many people were working in this industry Yeah, back in the 50s and 60s extraordinary what we found was that most of the kind of ma major production was pressing of records for the UK market so they wouldn't it would be international music and so they were servicing the UK they were pressing large you know the Beatles records were pressed in Ireland back in the day and an awful, an awful lot of what ended up in the British charts was being produced here and shipped over for sale there so that's where the money was what we and look was at that, like, Was that to meet the demand or was it like or was it a financial reason that it was being done here? We get the impression there was a there was a, there was at some point it was advantageous because of uh, VAT or okay. excise or something that uh, so EMI had a a pressing plant they built one in in uh, Long Mile Wexford Road, or Waterford Wexford, yeah. originally the first one mm. and then it moved up to the Long Mile Road so ultimately you've some kind of transaction where EMI UK are ultimately buying stock from EMI Ireland exactly that yeah and thing. and there's some you know yeah. there's some you know whatever reason just, is just making sense exactly yeah. yeah and then then they had extra capacity obviously so then under that they were making their pressing plant available to other labels yeah and then Carlton Productions, which is another pressing plant, which was independent Irish-owned mm. pressing plant, was established as well. So you had two pressing plants in Dublin uh, servicing mainly the UK, but also then they were doing everything for Ireland as well. So the stuff we're interested in is much smaller volume yeah. being produced, but lots and lots and lots of different releases. But yeah. people would be going in and getting 500 or 1,000 yeah. or even... I think they would they would take orders for as low as 300 copies of a record. Yeah, you know, kind so. of what's known now as like private press where... Yeah, of, exactly, you know, yeah. You distribute to your family and friends and suddenly 30 years later this thing is yeah. sought after by... Exactly, you know, yeah. So there's a, that's kind of what interested us was this sort of the stuff happening outside of the the main the, the major label industry and just mm. the fact that the, all these labels even the kind of more established labels like Clada 
or Gaylin. They were still independent labels, you know, they were still very small organisations and they had a, a set vision and that was reflected in the artwork and the printing and, and, and the music. Because major labels tend to have, you know, they're a much bigger organisation. There isn't, tends not to be a single vision behind mm. it, you know, whereas with a lot of the smaller labels, you can kind of see there's one or two people who are driving it and they're dictating the kind of the mood or the feel or the, the energy or whatever, the kind of the feel that that label has, you know, yeah. and that plays into all aspects of yeah. it, you know, so... And, that has, and there's another aspect of that. I mean, there is this mythos which has evolved about the UK situation where independence are really a product of punk. But when we look at the Irish situation, we see nothing but independence. Yeah. Now, some of them are state-backed, some of them are religious-backed, uh, some of them are obviously musical, but that's the nature of the game here. It's all under that radar yeah, that you see elsewhere. And, and one of the funny things for us was like, for instance, trying to find... Uh, we wanted to put a U2 album in, obviously. We put in Boy as... We had to. We felt it was necessary. Yeah. We didn't want to be under the shadow of U2 because there's such a huge presence in the Irish record industry and the music industry as well. But one of the funny things was Under a Blood Red Sky, we realised that that was actually printed in Ireland. Yeah. At least for this market. Yeah. And we'd actually expected all their stuff to be printed From outside of Ireland yeah. in the UK and then imported in. So it was interesting to find yeah, that. Yeah, sort of what was interesting was there was quite a lot of UK material was being produced here so mm. it, it was a big industry so that's the size of the kind of of what was happening it more reflects the kind of UK uh, interaction with the pressing plants and the printing mm. companies rather than the indigenous scene being very vibrant but at the same time certain records were selling in colossal numbers other oh, records yeah. so didn't say you know like there was the private press sort yeah. of thing they went under someone's bed and that was the end of it or, you know or even there's a, one printer told me a situation where for instance they printed 20,000 or 30,000 of an Apple record right and this would be about 1980-81 it was the greatest hits selection a decision was taken mm, we don't think the market can bear it they trashed 25,000 of them yeah. and they sold 5,000 and as the guy said, they still made a profit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. When you began to put this together, and I suppose you put a call out for records for people mm. that you knew and so on and so yeah. forth. And then when all that stuff started coming in and with your own knowledge, how did you begin to thematically put this together? Literally, it was a case of we put them down on the floor of the print museum and walked through it. And uh, not myself assembled visually. We, we had quite a lot of thinking and toing and froing about this because we weren't quite sure even, I'd say, three months before the exhibition went live exactly how it treat this yeah. was it going to be purely chronological was it going to be t um, thematic was some other aspect going to come in but I think the fact that we'd had the framing device and you know once now came on board the idea that we would have a contemporary section that it would be a, a story of rise of fall and then a slight return yeah. that meant we had to treat it somewhat chronologically then try to dig into the thematic aspect as well. We'd kind of broken it down into genres, mm. really. But then, you know, when you look at, let's say, traditional mm. Irish music, I mean, that, that breaks down into lots of different genres and they don't, they're often kind of have different kind of ideological outlooks. Yeah. That was kind of getting messy in that we were kind of like, you know, we had classical and we had bits of jazz. We'd, we'd a lot of records that kind of sat on the boundary of two different genres mm. and they weren't kind of mm. cooperating with us. Yep. You know, so then we just said, look, we got all the stuff in that we had and we just start, we just laid it out. And I was the one who kind of wanted it to be visually just because I thought if you're, if people are going to look at a selection now it, as it turns out not all the some of the sections are not they're a visual mishmash because yep. that happens to be a representation of the mm. visual look of the look actual of, pieces of that yeah. so, but yeah. when, when we kind of put them together visually 
we could then see, you know, different for the traditional thing, the different kind of ideological outlooks or stances mm. or different periods of what was kind of. So we see, uh, you know, initially for traditional Irish music with Gaelin or Clada, very uh, modernist approach, very use of photography, sans serif typefaces, yeah. very no attempt at evoking Irishness per se. And then as the time moves on into the 70s, and that kind of reflected, let's say, Galen and Cladda's, the idea that they were wanted the music to be, to you know, they didn't want it to be kind of folksy or homespun or kind of... They wanted to have the same cachet as classical music. Ex- they yeah. wanted it to be a, not a classical form, but a form which had the same cultural value as a classical yeah. form. Yeah, bring it into the concert hall, yeah. out of the pub into the concert hall and present it to say, I mean, that's a kind of O'Reilly's mm. vision, isn't it? It's yeah. kind of to say Irish music is as good as yeah. the classical tradition. Yeah. It deserves the same. So both those labels kind of less so, clad much more so than Gaelin, but they both wanted to present uh, traditional music as very contemporary, a music of now yep. that deserved respect for its but as kind of time moves on into the 70s you see the kind of traditional kind of melding into kind of the broader folk thing and so you get a lot of you know then Celtic sort of visuals and imagery starts getting and the Irish heritage the kind of the book of Kells exactly becomes really a big and that's kind of I think in a way is reflecting kind of international things so psychedelia and you know Prague that's really interesting too is that you know you have this when you laid them out visually you could kind of see wow here's one group of traditional people who their vision is this for traditional music and then you see the kind of slightly younger people coming in in the 70s and they want to they don't they're not purists per se Mm. but they're still massively enthused by the music and fired up by it but they want to marry it to kind of rock music or to English folk ballads or to do you know kind of bringing bring in balalaikas or whatever yeah, yeah. you know they're, they're the, much the, less dogmatic the cover of Clannad's Zulaman album is a classic of that because it has a Clannad logo which is a Celtic influenced logo and then the band themselves are down on the seashore and it's it could be Fleetwood Mac Dulamon there from Clannad from the album of the same name released in 78 the band's third album now back to Kieran Swan on Fuam, the band's fifth album and indeed, Foom later on very much looks like Fleetwood Mac. So, I mean, there's this real sense of, as you're saying, people coming in, they're taking in all these influences and they're moving away from the quite rigid formulations of Gail Lynn and Clada into something which is a lot more casual and a lot more expressive. Now, this then goes off in other directions. You get high kitsch. Uh, you get you wind up, for instance, the Jim Fitzpatrick side of things as well. That's a different element, again, which leans very heavily on illustrated manuscripts and on the styles of that. And then it's adopted by rock. Kind of um, like Jim Fitzpatrick's take on it is, it's very playful. Yeah, you know, very much so. He kind of is. uh, Of course, like for those listeners, uh, I suppose we'd associate like Thin Lizzy really with Jim Fitzpatrick. So he'd done quite a lot of covers for Thin Lizzy. None of them really evoking Irishness. Other than maybe Mm. um, Black Rose, is that the? There's slightly Irishy. Slightly Irishy. But up to. Johnny the Fox. Uh, Johnny the Fox, mm-hmm. the, the band expressly wanted him to yeah. do an Irish mm. sleeve at that stage. And you look at it, and it is Irish interlace, but it's also Art Nouveau and Art Deco as well, which is in there. So he's yeah, actually even there's... playing, from a distance you look at it and you say, this is quintessential, and, and we said it ourselves just a few minutes ago, quintessentially thin, Lizzie, etc. has a Jim Fitzpatrick look, which is Irish. And then you inspect it and you say, yeah, it is Irish, 
but there's more going on here as well and as you say he's really playful with it and then that's adopted by certain people and then we see we see a response to that further down the line when you have Stockton's wing and moving hearts who push back against that Irishness and try to represent themselves or present themselves as being in essence much more world music yeah. and having a visual formulation, which in a way actually isn't a million miles away from some of the stuff that's gone on a new wave. But then there's another aspect as well. We have a section which is, we have two sections side by side. And one is the, uh, should we say, the state releases from RTE. For instance, The Pope. There's at least three records of The Pope's visit in D9. There's ones on the year of the French, 1798. There's other ones as well. I'm trying to think. There's a thing of... Kennedy's De- speeches. Kennedy speeches. Devonair speeches. Yeah. And then we counterpose that because that's official Ireland and that's the vision of the state as it sees itself and it doesn't attempt to address any of the uh, the other issues. And then on beside it, we've got the balladeers, the wolfhounds and the wolf tones and the men of no property. And the men of no property album is fantastic. It has a sort of red hand of Ulster, which is holding a, in a style which is drawn directly from 1960s protest posters. Yeah. And it's holding a, a cut out of a gun. And it's fascinating just to see these were happening at the same time. Horselips then get a corner to themselves. It's worth saying with this, you know, we weren't putting the best music on the mm. walls. Yeah. The, the music was kind of a secondary, a, a secondary to mm. it. It was really about the printing and the, the visuals of these things. And we didn't want to really have the exhibition taken over by a single artist. But as we were looking at things, Horselips, they really ticked all of our boxes perfectly like they'd extremely strong visual identity that changed very rapidly and they're an independent Irish label they'd full control over they were designers members of the bands were designers yep. themselves and they also have a iconic you know they're kind of well recognised yep. you know internationally you know they told a kind of an awful lot of the story and they also kind of connected the story from the kind of the trad coming back you know, mm. in the 60s, into the early 70s to a kind of a the beginning of new wave in the early 80s. Mm. And they, in a bizarre way, they managed to kind of embody those, like almost, that transition, which almost seems... Almost taking in a glam element. Yeah. Yes, very much and so. so. And the, a prog element and as well, the, like yeah. They, a bit like the Jim Fitzpatrick thing, they're very playful. It's a lot of fun happening yeah. and they're very unselfconscious. And it, it comes true in the visuals and in the music. King of the Fairies from Dancehall Sweethearts, 1974, Horselips' third album. Now back to Niall McCormack. Punk is not as big a thing in Ireland in a way, but by 1980, there's a new world there. Pretty much every sleeve from 1980 on in the exhibition has no reference to Irishness, Hmm. no hang-ups about Irishness. There's no... If there is, they're very subtle or they're very kind of nuanced or they're quite... They're very knowing, you know. There's almost no Irishness, visual, deliberate playing with Irishness after 1980. I mean, the closest in a way is, say, the Gorehounds have a, an EP called the Spud EP, which has a drawing of a spud, a potato, and on it various scenes from around Dublin. And that that's kind of it, in a way. Or yeah. you could argue perhaps the Virgin Prunes on some of their material, where they actually had photographs of areas around where they grew up. And yeah. of course, then they shared not a visual identity, but certain connections, obviously, with U2. And we had soul-searching about U2 because, again, there's such a huge presence. But at the same time, we felt we had to include the Boy album cover because it's such an iconic album cover. Yeah, it's a really brilliant piece of design. Hugo McGuinness's photograph, Steve Avril's design. Actually, that sets really the template for their whole aesthetic. Mm. You know, they did diverged from it for a while, but they've really come back to that much more kind of stripped back and kind Mm. of 
quite minimalist and just, you know, iconic sort of visuals, you know. There's an odd echo as well, if you think about the Mother record sleeve, uh, which was, of course, established by U2. And I was there to fund Irish yeah, bands. I love the seven inch, the M shape. The color, yeah, yeah. I love that Which sleeve. of course is derived from an Irish. It, there's an Irish look to it. It's uh, interlaced and so yeah. forth. It, it's fascinating because we were looking at it and saying, this fits in perfectly with this. It fits in with what we're, we're looking at. Yeah. I think Steve Avril did that as well. Yeah, that's a Steve Avril. And yeah. so that, that is the last bit of Celtic yes. interlace that appears really. In the exhibition, yeah. But it's done in a very modern kind of fashion. Mm. It's not Irish. Yeah. At all, no. you know, it's it's quite, it's almost hidden. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's you know that's actually the centre of the design, but it's not. And then, and then it's interesting. We have a wall of contemporary album sleeves which you selected, and there's only one which has any element of Irishness on it, isn't there? Really, any overt element? Yeah. Which is Gavin Friday? Yeah. The Catholic sleeve. Yeah. 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 Which is which is the uh, which is uh, which is the Michael Collins ramped up to the yeah. max. Yeah. yeah. It's I mean, an extraordinary it, photograph. Yeah. One almost feels like after that there is no point in ever doing any no. Irish iconography ever again yeah, because it, this has done it. It's gone to the max yeah. and he knew what he was doing there. Yeah. It's it's a remarkable piece of work. From Gavin Friday's 2011 album Catholic, that was the single Abel. Now back to Niall who tells the story of the Dutch designers who ended up working in Ireland in the post-war years. It's a story a lot of designers would be aware of but the Irish general public wouldn't know much of it. Uh, the, the best known of them would, would be Gerrit van Gelderen who went on to make nature programmes and he, he became a household name and he'd do the drawings. Yes. The rest of them, there was a whole slew of them. Not many of them did record covers. Record covers didn't pay a lot so mo- they were kind of busy in ad agencies and design agencies. What's interesting is people do record covers if they're really into music and they're drawn to it or in Cor Classen's case he was who was the Dutch designer who did a lot of record covers for the Catholic Records Club. He was a very kind of fast, he was a supremely kind of gifted. He had a kind of purple Mm. patch from about 60, 68 to about 72 and he did over 30 album sleeves but he did well over 150 book covers in that short period and the record covers are nearly all of them are dynamite. He's a really interesting character but Holland after the war they had amazing art colleges they were producing lots of high grade designers but Holland there was you know major land shortage housing shortage the country was not in a great situation so these people came to Ireland they really thought you know Ireland was just beginning to get into the kind of the La Masse era so they they, they, obviously the green shoots were just about showing in the 50s you know and then it kind of by the 60s there's a there's a, a real kind of loosening up and a, a beginning of us looking out. And I think to a degree, the exhibition reflects that, reflect you know, that, you know, there's, there's yeah. a lot of vibrancy. And I think I hope those, in what um, we show those album covers that um, Glasson did for the church, like they don't have any religious iconography on them or it seems like he was given a free hand, if you know. What well, I, mean. I think to a degree he was. But if you if if you if you think of them in relation to church architecture, modernist church architecture yeah. and stained glass and Vatican II. Yeah, basically Vatican II, the church elements of the church, I think, you know, it's essentially a branding exercise. Yes. It seems crass to say yeah. that, but mm. that's essentially what they're trying to do. They're trying to, and so if you look at Classen's album covers actually looks a bit like the stained glass of the time or yeah. the church architecture mm. so it is defiantly modernist you know, it's defiantly kind of abstract and yeah. like what's strange is the actual content of the recording 
seems is quite dreary, you know, and it's it's spoken word and it's ho hum, but the it's top class design, but it's yeah. also very kind of advanced, you know, and it, a lot of that material hasn't been seen outside of Ireland. So when people do see it, they kind of they're, they're really respond to it. it. Yeah, yeah. They, they, the other side is that was 30 odd record sleeves in the space of four or five years that shows you there was a market for 30 yeah. record sleeves in a very niche genre now I know it was around the time of Va- it was the post-Vatican II and there was obviously an, uh, an opening up I don't know if the sales were big mm. this was all funded by the church you know they had money and this was obviously somebody decided this was a one way of kind of getting the message out to people and so it's a fascinating little window it, we now seem to think of the church in, in very kind of we, we associate it with a kind of backwards Ireland and we, we tend to kind of think, oh, the church was always regressive. But when you actually go back and look at the sort of things they were doing, you know, in terms of uh, visual culture or, or even church building, they were actually very progressive. It's a, it really kind Modernist of... Modernist. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's very odd that it's, it's, it, there's a kind of cognitive dissonance that yeah. kind of kicks in fairly quickly. You're going to go, what? Later generations have kind of thought that they kind of won the, the battle against, mm. the kind of, you know. They, but I, I kind of think it's more like my parents' generation who would have been that La Masse era people... They didn't kind of shun the church, but they kind of, you know, kind of quiet sort of, we'll just get on with, you know, we'll tend and we'll do the things. Yeah. We'll take what we like and yeah. we'll leave the bits we don't like. It leads us into the show band era yeah. perfectly. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I yeah. mean, there's, there's a wall of show band era sleeves mm. as well. And they're fascinating, Kiron. The show bands, in a sense, continuing on from that point there, the show bands yeah. themselves simply by dint of the fact they took the music out of the parish hall yeah. and they established their own network which interestingly Horsefs used that as a distribution yeah. and um, gigging network subsequently yeah. in the early part of their career so they locked into this pre-existing sh- show band network and so the show bands themselves were part of that process as you just described now yeah. of changing the nature of the exercise moving the society in a somewhat different direction and of course we have this vision of the show bands as you know in a way rather plain or what have you but the more one investigates them it's it's quite easy actually get quite enthusiastic about the show bands because the music itself is kind of intriguing at this remove but then there's also the fact that these are great musicians they could really play and there's numerous accounts of how well they played live and so forth. And it was a form that really was only captured on vinyl well into the actual period of the show bands. Yeah, to a degree, yeah. what we show in the exhibition is doesn't really represent yeah. the show yeah. band explosion, mainly because it's a live phenomenon, but also it's a singles. We don't have much. And that's a kind of failing of the exhibition to a degree is the seven-inch single gets and short shrift. A lot of those weren't on picture sleeves either, though. Well, it's, yeah, true, I think you know? so. But I've actually looking back and, you know, labels, later labels like Tara and mm. Dolphin and that, they do picture sleeves right the way along. I mean, Unfortunately, it's much harder to kind of track them down. I mean, just on the show bands, the show bands actually, when I, just talking about it now, it reminds me a lot actually of bands in the 80s because so many of them were on UK labels. And so much of it was part of a broader, we might not see it at this remove, but the show bands actually, so many of the show bands transitioned from show bands into pop acts. That's right. Some yeah. into country. Yeah. Country and Irish. And there was a, and so a connection shops, between yeah. the beat groups and the show bands. Yeah. There was a lot more crossover there happening. and Than some people would like to say yeah. or to recognise or admit at this you know, stage. Th- and the beat group phenomenon is not a well-known kind of area, partly because a lot of those bands went to London very early yeah. on in their careers. And 
beyond, let's say, you know, Rory Gallagher or Paul Brady who came, or Van Morrison. You know, there are people who came from the beat group scene, mm. but most of the bands kind of, they had very short, you know, meteoric sort of careers. They yeah. just burnt out very quickly, you know. Um, so a lot of really interesting stuff kind of falls out of our interest area unfortunately yeah. because either it was it, it, it happened in the UK or they only made a small run of singles and, yeah. and, and didn't have and we're sleeves not gonna, we're not going to reflect that we have a very small selection of sleeves simply to say yes we know there are 7 inch sleeves there we know there are 12 inch sleeves there but we have to put it in to show this exists but as a phenomenon it's just too big well I think country music has always had that appeal lyrically yeah. it has, a, uh, has an appeal it doesn't take itself seriously and there's an irony at work, there's you know you can enjoy it at multiple levels. The, a lot of the lyrics mm. have kind of it's the hard look story, but they're kind of so that look is so hard look that it's kind of comedy, you know. Yeah. And I love that about it. It kind of shares that a bit with kind of uh, blues or even with soul music, you know, where there's a, an element of ironicness to it. I think that's part of the appeal. So you have the likes of Brendan Shine or Big Tom. It's entertainment, you know. There, yeah. there. It's there's an element of camp to it. They're playing it up, you know. So it's and even and, Daniel uh, is Daniel's kind of, an he's, he's of that. quite yeah. Yeah. Daniel Donnelly. You yeah. know, there's a lot of irony there. He's self aware in terms of the kind of how kind of kitschy is, you know. Or certainly, he, certainly he, he would has argue been. probably he wasn't that ironic. But whether but now he is, you know what I mean. He appears in ads as yes. a, a playing Daniel yes. O'Donnell, yeah. Yeah. and they're very That's funny, true. you know. Yeah. You get the guy. The guy yeah. has like he's super professional about what he does, but he, he you get that he gets that some people yeah. think he's a joke, yeah. but that's actually become part of that's why he's likeable you know stick now yeah. Almost. yeah so but is daniel country and irish you know th- this is the weird thing there's actual you know like with the traditional thing there's you know different people with different mm. visions irish country artists who would never call themselves country and irish of course we've lumped it together as country and irish we did, un- unfairly yeah. in a way but that was just a I mean, that would be another exhibition as well. <laughs> so easily another yeah. exhibition. It would be fantastic to go through Daniel's covers one after another and just trace the development of him across the years and the decades and how his image in some ways hasn't changed at all. Yeah. He's been very consistent. He's the sweater over the shoulders. Absolutely. And it's a pastel colour always. Yeah. yeah. He he likes the sweaters. And and in a way, I mean, it's it's a testament to his endurance and his willingness to keep at it. One of the things we went into this exhibition was with, I'd like to say, an open mind and a willingness to see the humour, but never to sneer, never to look at the stuff and to say... That's too easy to do, isn't it? It's too easy. And it's also very... It it sells the people who make the music short. Yeah. Because some music obviously isn't to my taste and some music is. But the amount of effort that we see there, you have to literally say... Again, it's very admirable that there are people plugging away in so many different genres and so often for love, not for money. Because, And we've, we've commented on this now myself so many times that if you think about this logically, very few people are going to make a living out of music and very many people try to get into music. So it has to have something above and beyond that. And it becomes a labour of love, obviously, in so many different cases. And then you have to respect that for what it is. Now, it doesn't mean the music in every instance is great, but I haven't heard a genre yet which is represented in that exhibition which doesn't have some fantastic stuff in it. And that goes across the board from the show bands, uh, the Real McCoy and people like that are doing fantastic stuff. Same with country and Irish, just great stuff. And it's, it's fascinating to see how their enthusiasm actually rubs off on people who come in and see it yeah. and see the record sleeves and then listen I think, to it. Well, it, that was important to us in a way, you know, both for the visuals and kind of the music. You know, the whole, we want, we didn't, we wanted to kind of show the full range of 
things, ha you know, have as many of the different activities as try and capture some mm. aspect of everything that was happening. Of course, we, we haven't really, you know, there there is definitely things that we didn't manage to attain, but it's a bit of a, a visual cacophony, mm. you know, especially on the first wall, you know, it, it feels like there's a kind of chaos to it. Like, we're both designers and we it was important to us to ha not be design snobs and to... Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, in fact, we're kind of quite, our, I think our taste is quite broad, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We, we can appreciate quite a wide range of design. So there's some excellent design in there, but there's some stuff that's patently... Not great. In, yeah, you yeah. know, that it, it's amateur, or but the, there's an enthusiasm behind it. And even the fact that it went to print is part of the story, you know, that yes. somebody yeah. had to grapple with the problem of kind of putting a cover on something you yes. know so that was of interest to the, us you know so we didn't want to kind of just put the best examples and not tell the full story you know there's a designer called uh, Diane O'Donnell uh, she worked on some of the country labels it's another a label that released an awful lot of Philomena Begley yeah. Red Hurley yeah. You can see the wall of and you can you can see those records. Probably that that might have been the first time you saw those records those particular sleeves or it might not but you see them and they're really they are fantastic pieces of design and sense are hugely eye-catching they're all done about 1970 through to 75 she later did um, record sleeve for a comedian I'm trying to think who it was Hal Roach it was Hal Roach that's right around 1980 and we know very little about her but she was she had this incredibly powerful visual identity which links in actually to Americana Mm. Philomena Begley yeah the, there's trucks the yeah. truck driving album and it's, it's almost it, like Graham Parsons it, yeah in a way but it's it like very the, the picture of him standing yeah. in front yeah. of the truck well I think yeah. he's referencing those trucking records yeah, yeah. so he's, well, he's doing it kind of it, it, his take is quite tasteful yeah. if you know what I mean as everything you did mm. was but he's definitely referencing those trucking yeah. the kind of star day trucking records Absolutely. which are visually they're really striking yeah, yeah. Well, stri <laughs> they have this kind of charming kind of they're really shouting at you they're selling yeah. their what they have you know there's no ambiguity about you know buy this record it's going to have all the songs well, that you want you know one of the great aspects of them is and people who were like I think all of us here who went into record stores back in the past will remember like the little stickers which were put on the outside of the records little card, um, paper stickers glued on and you know in a star formation or whatever get this now 99 pence or whatever if you're lucky probably 199 or 499 but on the Philomena Begley album and the Red Hurley one in the design it's actually part of that there are stickers in the design yeah, yeah, yeah. and I love that I think it's so um, I think it says so much about the perceptions of the records themselves and how they're pitched and presented and all the rest of it and one thing we did actually and this is on a slightly broader point we had no qualms about putting up records which had stickers on them from the period you know if it was 99 pence uh, old pence obviously I was, you were a little I more equivocal that, about it but in, insofar as originally I was thinking you know this is somebody's work of art and if you know the there's a big sticker from you know you know Murray's music or whatever yeah. it's kind of interrupting the thing but the the more we kind of thought about it you know these the records are pretty the sleeves are pretty battered by the time we got them they've been yeah. loved or or ignored or, or, not or whatever loved at you know all. um but they've they have a life yeah. and but that's part of the thing it's so the, yeah i have a friend who's left every price tag on every album he's ever bought yeah i'd be the opposite Whereas i would I never obsessively do that. Would, yeah, would get yeah, a kettle yeah, yeah. the first job is but, to try and remove but it. it's interesting looking back through his records yeah, it tells an extra. It tells a story. Yeah, it, it does. does. Where he um, got it, how much it was. Yeah, inflation. So uh, you know, yeah. Th it there's is another side of this as well, which is like I think particularly now because the record sleeve seems to have gone into a different 
area completely. The record sleeve is now moving towards something along the lines of art. Now, I'm never, I'm not saying it never was, but I'm saying that it's the cachet about record sleeves. I now go into tower, and I look in wonderment and bafflement at the racks of record sleeves yeah. because you know I moved on mid nineties to well, maybe late 90s, to CDs and yeah. then on to downloads and so forth. And I love my records. I still have them and I cherish them and all the rest of it. But at the same time, I stopped buying records at a certain point in my life. And I look at these things and I think to myself, the nature of them hasn't changed entirely because we always valued them. You would buy, you would go into town and you'd buy a record and you might not actually have heard any of the music on it. You might have read about it in Hot Press or Melody Maker or Sounds Magazine. Almost the process of bringing it home on the bus would be as enjoyable as the actual listening should. And then you actually got to listen to it. Yeah. It was fantastic or it was dreadful. But it could be one <laughs> or the other. <laughs> Very few in between, in my experience. The funny thing now is you, you savoured the album artwork because it was such a part of the process of listening to the music. You would look at it and I, I, maybe this was just me, but having spoken to many other people, I think it's a fairly sh- widely shared experience. You'd look at every aspect of the sleeve. You'd read the liner notes. You would um, get to know the records. That, you know, people would buy 4D yeah, records. Yeah, you'd get to know names of studio people, yeah. producers, Absolutely. designers. You, you would look out uh, for this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and then because that would be, if you saw a name on a record you really liked yeah. and then it popped up elsewhere, then that was a, a door into exactly. another, Absolutely. you know, kind of, in a way, in the world of downloads. And th- I think that's why the, the return of the physical object is important or why people f- feel it. Mm. It's, the, you know, where, where you download a song, there's no visual, there's no yeah. sleeve notes, there's no credits, who did what. You know, yeah. like for me, the that and, sort of. But like, what you're saying, Kieran, is really interesting because if if you think in the last two or three years, IKEA and Tiger, for instance, have just Tiger like records. selling record frames, you the see, record that's as where art. I wonder. I mean, I wonder how many people actually view it now as art, and how many people would actually put record sleeves up on their walls. Um, I'm not quite at that stage because I still see the record sleeve as being really important, but it's part of the process of holding it. And again, that tactile interaction. Whereas I think if I put it behind a sheet of glass, it's going to change the nature of it somehow. That plays into the exhibition in terms of how we were going to mount it. Mm. And part of the hanging of it was down to budget and, you know, there was certain... And security considerations as well. Yeah, exactly. But what we've ended up with in a way, there's three different hanging methods, but the... The initial one is to mimic a kind of a, an old school record shop, yeah, you know, the counter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that makes total sense. And then then we ended up with these uh, using kind of corner mounts, m- corner mounts that you use for mirrors, you know, mm. which w- they're totally inelegant and they actually interrupt the thing a bit. But they weren't our first choice. But as it came together, we kind of if we liked the fact that actually rather than kind of making out that the uh, it interrupted that idea that we were presenting these as art, art. yeah you know exactly but like not to say that we weren't but what we're what we're kind of saying is that the interesting thing about record covers is that they they exist in a kind of this a space between the commercial world and the art world you know they're, they're ha- there's a creative artistic aspect to them but there's also a commercial advertising yeah. art aspect to them and that plays out it's a spectrum so some records are very much marketing devices mm. they're all marketing devices obviously but others play much more on the artistic kind of sensibility but we didn't want to kind of elevate them too much beyond how you might see them in in the real world you know I mean two of the more contemporary examples you have in there that really kind of say that to me are those um Donica Costello's like minimized releases yeah yeah the box yeah. sets you know yeah just, they're... where as as objects they're just 
absolutely gorgeous, you know. And but how do you present them? Yeah, 20 they, minutes, 30 minutes, trying to work out the best way because it's a series of record sleeves yeah. which are different colours. It's almost like colour palette sheets, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. and they're they're beautiful it, it, dogs. Just, but, um, David Donahue. David Donahue yeah, yeah, designed yeah. them, yeah. And it's gorgeous they're work. really super, super. And that was Blue Bee from Donica Costello's colour series released on Minimize back in 2004. It was a series of 10 12-inch singles. That was the B-side of the first 12-inch in the series, which was the colour blue, hence Blue Bee. The end kind of section of it, unlike the rest of the exhibition, is purely kind of chosen for on the design aspect of the, the things. I felt to show kind of the contemporary work that's happening in design, even though the material isn't printed in Ireland now, you could argue that the design has got better. Part of that's technologically led, but it also just shows you that design education has improved. More people are working in the field. And so, so the, uh, there's a lot of really strong examples of really top quality design at the very end. That's, you know, any of those could, they're international standard, you know, they're not, you know, a lot of the music is very, groups uh, as well. it's actually, uh, yeah, it's yeah. all, all of it is Irish music. I took a note of some of the sleeves I love in it. I love, I love the Stars of Heaven EP Hollyhead that just has a photo of a B&I ship, a B&I ship yeah. heading off. Yeah, that's mid eighties immigration. Yeah, because yeah. they're they kind of uh, sit with their with Micro Disney. They're kind of uh, they, they, there's a lot of trade they, anyway. Yeah, yeah, and they were they they, they played a lot of gigs yeah. together and that. You don't think of them as being particularly political. Yeah. Mm. But then when you actually dig down, a lot of the lyrics are Absolutely. very political. Yeah. But it's very unlike Micro Disney. The politics is front Brilliant. and center. Yeah. Whereas Stars of Heaven are dealing with a lot of the same topics. But it's their their way of putting it across like the the Hollyhead EP that cover like that's yeah. such a political statement but it's so yeah. understated yes. as a thing I think all their stuff had more or less the same yeah. look uh, they get really strongly consistent I love um, John Langford's uh, We Hate You South Africa Caricature of the Pope yeah uh, that's yeah. amazing isn't it yeah and he was the main guy the Mekons, the Mekons Three Johns yeah and yeah. he, and he did lots of other sleeves for other friends yeah and in a way we did the micro disney fall into the, the you know and to a degree the stars of heaven they've both decamped to the uk yeah. or more so micro disney you know we, we kept them both in but in a way they're kind you can almost classify them as the ones that got away you say i hear you you say i hear you you say i hear you now go never saw you by the stars of heaven that was the lead track from the band's 87 EP, Hollyhead, released on Rough Trade Records. And Hollyhead is featured in the Greensleeves exhibition. Now back to Nile. Well, it's interesting with Steve Avril with, in The Radiators. He, yeah. he leaves the band but remains on as an, 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 a creative, a kind of force. creative yeah. member. Designer. You know, he's yeah. still in the band essentially, but he's not performing on stage. But then Avril's fascinating as well because if you throw a rock at any of the album sleeves that we have displayed from the 1980s series, Steve Avril did them. Yeah. 
it's yeah, he stunning. popped up an awful lot. And well, we we could actually, actually call the exhibition a retrospective in part of Steve Averill's work. But it's funny though because he, he pops up in all sorts of places that I thought I had a good handle on, kind of mm. where he was active. But there was often times we'd be kind of rummaging through stuff, and you'd pick out something, you kind of go, "Oh, geez, that's amazing!" You know, who did that? And you'd look at the back of it. That's bloody Steve, Steve Averill. Averill. You know, yeah. it's just like so. We had a quite a broad range and far more active than we've even represented you Absolutely, know there's way yeah. he was act prolific again it then comes back shown. to the thing you could do seven exhibitions off the Absolutely. back of this and, and one of the things I mean one of the other aspects which is perhaps worth just saying as well one we try to get some oral history of this from people who are involved so we spoke to people who were involved in the Golden Horde Burns from the Golden Horde for instance Stand from Stars of Heaven at, and we also spoke so we spoke to musicians we spoke to designers we spoke to Hugo McGuinness who did the cover of Boy as the photographer we spoke to Steve Avril. we spoke to printers we spoke to printers as yeah. well because I mean whatever else this is a great particularly Dublin a little bit of Belfast great Irish working class story as well yeah. it's an amazing story a very specific part of Irish culture Absolutely. and Irish industry and the printing aspect of it as well and you have all these forces coming together, producing with incredible sophistication, sometimes material under really, really difficult conditions. Yeah. A print shop could be one of the most adverse conditions. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that like a bit like the recording studio, the a printers is uh, is part of the means of production. Mm. And what we see through the exhibition is from an air from very early on, people who mightn't in the UK have got access to 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 make a record are doing it in Ireland, you yeah. know, and yeah. and there's quite a lot of activity. Central Remedial Clinic in Clontarf had its own print workshop. It was part of the CRC, and one of the fascinating aspects of it is a heap of record sleeves are printed there. There's a Boric Pierce memorial thing from uh, the late 70s, I think. Yeah. Speaking to people involved in it, they were producing reams of these things. And it's that sort of excitement. I mean, you know, the word punk is overused, but that sense of people going out there using the means of production that are available and really going with it and doing some amazing stuff. And it's very easy in one way and it's very, very difficult in another. And was there any story that you heard along this journey that took you completely by surprise and you went, my God, that's incredible. If there's something that surprised me and it was kind of, in a way, as pleasantly surprising, it was the fact that I had actually thought going in that there would be very, very, there'd be no women involved, that it would be all male. But what surprised me was you suddenly find there are designers, women designers in the 70s, in the 60s and the 70s and in the 80s photographers as well and more and more coming in and right up to the, the contemporary period yeah. Yeah. We, we figure it's about 45, 55, 40, 60% um, which is designers which is yeah. um, actually not representative of the industry I think there are more women than men in the industry as a whole but it's, well, it's well, interesting it, how there's a move there's a move in a, in, in a direction which you didn't expect and I think there's a huge story to be written about that as well I mean I think there's so many different stories to be written about this I think well in the industry more. there's there, there is more women working in it but they're all at a lower level so there's a mm. lot of work has to be done in terms of, of proper representation yeah. you know but in terms of the exhibition we were conscious that we were it was going to be a kind of a bloke fest and yeah. it was going to be and it wasn't quite the bloke fest we'd expected no some of it's, it's just it's an interesting reflection on how things have changed as well and maybe there's a hidden story there as well yeah. which would be well worth people investigating Guys, there's a book in it. Have you have you started talking about that? Because well, my we're God, trying you should. to. It, 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 We've got a number we, of projects underway. Yeah. Well, we, we are doing some writing on, yeah. you know, to, to get the, our thoughts down on paper. Yeah. But, you know, we're looking to get some funding yeah. to to make a book a, yeah. a reality. You know, it's, mm. we there's a lot of work we'll have to go in, and I think if we're going to do it. It has to be. Uh, 
you know, it has you to be done do it right. Do it right. And it has to be honest to the material and it also has to have examples of the material. It can't yeah. just be in isolation because the visuals are what it's Absolutely. all about. It's a uh, it's a coffee table tomb, isn't it? Yeah, I think it we, is. We, which, we, which, by its very nature, would be an expensive book as it well. It would be an expensive production. But yeah. hey, twelve by twelve inches, yeah, absolutely. Like it's perfect format. <laughs> it We're up for that. <laughs> but uh, you know, it'd be striking the balance between we. Ha- it has to have a decent critical analysis yeah. of the material, you know, because in a way, most of what we've done so far, we've done tours and that it's yep. been quite chatty and it's quite informal yeah. and anecdotal. But mm. in a way, we need to kind of sit down you know really bring Dig together our thinking deeper. and kind of yeah. and, and kind of get much more kind of analytical about what's happening visually you know and in a way the book if it comes to pass and hopefully it will will, will be a chance to kind of explore the kind of the full yeah. fullness Story. of the packaging and yeah. you know show you know that people were as concentrated on the label art or the the inserts yeah. or the yeah. process of you know the gatefold vinyl and you know there's lots of aspects that we barely the design touch of the labels on, you know. themselves yeah you know. d1 yeah absolutely guys we're going to end it kiron and niall it's been a pleasure chatting to you and that was niall mccormick and dr kiron swan chatting about the green sleeves exhibition that they curated for the national print museum back in 2017 Now there's a fantastic digital version of the exhibition and it's available on the Print Museum's website. And if you go to paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find the episode notes and a link to the exhibition. You'll also find further information about the podcast. If you enjoyed this one, then please subscribe, like and share. The theme music. I've been asked for some further information about the music that introduces and closes the podcast. So here goes. In July 2021, I happened to be staying in a house that had an old gramophone in fantastic working condition and a collection of 78s. One of those 10 inches was the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. This was originally released in 1930 on the HMV label, His Master's Voice. It was a 78 RPM shellac 10-inch. It even had that beautiful HMV logo on its label. Nipper, the famous Jack Russell Terrier. I put the record onto the old platter, lowered the needle and I filmed a 20-second video. I posted it on Twitter. Mark Healy, who once upon a time drummed with the great Cork band Cypress Mine, he copied the piece of music from my tweet, and as he says himself, he mangled it with his modular. The result Mark calls Irish Rhapsody Redux, and that's the theme music to the podcast. Victor Herbert, the composer, he wrote Irish Rhapsody in 1892 for the Gaelic Society of New York. And it was a hugely popular composition at the turn of the last century. It was still popular into the 1920s and 30s. And as I said, the version I recorded was from 1930. Victor Herbert's story is itself fascinating. An Irish-American, it's said that every professional recording artist today owes their livelihood, to some degree, to Victor Herbert. He is credited as being one of the driving forces in founding ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers.
He died in 1924 and he was the subject of a Hollywood biopic in 1939's The Great Victor Herbert. Another Irish-American, Walter Connolly, plays Herbert in that film. So there you go, a little bit of history behind the theme music. Here it is, Irish Rhapsody Redux by Mark Healy. Until the next episode, goodbye.